Welcome to Mere Utterance, the podcast where we explore small stories and the big impact they have on our lives. On the podcast this week, we chat with Bernie, who takes us on her journey through navigating life. Witty, with a dry, wicked sense of humour, Bernie gives us a candid and vulnerable glimpse into her story, encompassing everything from study and identity to battling cancer and finding love. With a background in science, Bernie shares the many events that shaped her development and that continue to shape her today. So nice to see you. Really nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the spread. Oh, no problem. For for those of you who are listening, when we have somebody over to interview, we usually put on a big spread of food. So Mm. we've just spent the last hour eating and chatting. It's been fun. It's been amazing. It's totally worth the intermittent fasting. (laughs) (laughs) Save room for all the food. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to start with our usual question, Mm. which is if you could introduce yourself at this point in time, how would you do it? If I could introduce myself, um, a 32-year-old female living in Sydney. (laughs) I actually love that. Because there's, yeah, I identify with that. Tara identifies with that around (laughs) that, like, rough age group. Yeah, cool. Um, How long have you been in Sydney for? uh, I was born in Sydney. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. Okay. So, like, out, like, you're living out west now, right? No. So, I live in, um, it's not technically the inner west. It's around the airport in a city. It's the inner city. Yeah. So, I'm technically a yuppie. Love it. Young working professional. Um, but yeah, I was born in the southwest and grew up there most of my life. Actually only moved out east um, the last couple of years. Really? Mm-hmm. How's the transition been? Uh, good. Well, I moved out of home. <laughs> <laughs> I lived with my mum until I was 29. Okay. And um, yeah, moved, moved out of home just a few months before COVID hit. Oh, my God. So I was really excited to have my own space. Oh, no. And then found myself in lockdown in a studio with no balcony. That's so bad. I'm so sorry. It was interesting. It was interesting. I bet. Yeah. Wait, so what was that like? You sort of like built up all the anticipation and the excitement for moving out and then... Actually, it was was mixed because um, I had... I love my mum and I struggled to move out of home. I'm the youngest of four. Really? And the age gap is um, considerable. It's several years. Really? Yeah. I knew I wanted to move out, but I just didn't quite know how to do it. So I think I was quite unhappy and stressed for a year or two. Yeah. Then when I finally moved out, I thought, yep, just grow up, make the move be an adult and just you're not you're not going to do it perfectly see how you go you got lots of advice yeah and I was really excited to make my own space yeah what was the hesitation to move out before you oh there were a few things it was feeling like I would um fail (laughs) (laughs) I really identify with that one (laughs) I had had fears of not managing my budget well not being able to count and and um yeah, yeah, going bankrupt or whatever, which is quite wow. melodramatic, and it was just out of anxiety. And yeah. I knew, you know, 
not going to be homeless if it doesn't work out on me if I can move on. It's so funny that you say that though, because <laughs> I remember when I was in my early twenties and I moved out and I was sort of between places. I remember sitting down and doing like a big mind map because apparently mm. all of the world's problems can be solved through a mind map. Yeah. And I was like, especially if you I... do them in different colors. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm solving my problems and it's pretty. Um, and I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what if I end up homeless and I have no money and I never go anywhere and I'm a failure and yeah. like, you know, everything just implodes. Yeah. And I remember the interesting thing was I also felt like a failure because I wasn't moving to a share house first. Which is Wait, weird. yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I'm not, I'm not actually sure if I mentioned it to Tara or not. I think I just felt like I had so many friends who had, were um, renting and sharing house because that's the only way you can make ends meet while you're studying and all that stuff. And you go through uh, so many big life lessons in a share house. There's actually a book, which again, I'm not going to remember the title of the author. <laughs> so I'll, I think it was, he died with a falafel in his hand. Oh my god. It's a book, can't remember the author, I'll look it up for you later or someone will know. It's an eccentric collection of stories based on real stories by this guy who lived in so many random weird share houses and he just details all the crazy things that go on. And I thought, that needs to be my baptism of fire. I'm going <laughs> to learn about how to negotiate and compromise and interact with people and solve problems and stuff by throwing in the deep end but I'm cheating because I waited until I was nearly 30 to be able to afford to move out on my own ah you cheater right I know weird do you feel like you missed out on a rite of passage no I look back now and I'm very grateful (laughs) hell yes yeah yeah Yeah. I think it would have been quite stressful I think if I'd had good and bad share house experiences it would have worked out fine but right. i don't think i need to continue in that mindset of being so hard on myself and and thinking that i've cheated and done it the easy way but there's a lot of things in life that i kind of feel like oh i didn't do that i just got lucky really mm. you don't feel that way sometimes Oh, I think I absolutely do. Yeah, I think I absolutely do. Yeah. And I mean, I only lived in one share house and then was, you know, I'm never going to do that again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Worked one corporate job and was never going to do that again. And I think... Did one thesis, never doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so you did your thesis? Honours. What was your honours thesis on? Oh, some interesting rock in the Upper Hunter. It shouldn't have been there. It was. Why? (laughs) (laughs) That was basically the thesis. Yeah. Okay, why was it though, though? Mm. Ah, rocks move. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a good summary of of geology, basically. The question was, did it come out of a volcano and travel far away? Or did it come out before, lie low for a bit, and then get mixed up? And we think it was the second one. Mm. Amazing. the air of sarcasm it mm. kind of is it's so funny because before dating tara i knew nothing about rocks at all and no, now when i run walking no right and now whenever i'm walking down the street or i'm like anywhere i'm i'm like oh my gosh i think i think this is a granite or a granodiorite <laughs> and tara's like good job Jess. <laughs> yeah that actually is a good job yeah, no. the best place to um do a geology tour is around the CBD and look at all the building stones. Yeah. Because yeah, there's, if you go to Circular Quay and you go to 
the corner opposite the Police and Justice Museum, that mm. building there. Um, it's some government building, but it's got this beautiful green serpentinized metamorphic rock. I don't even know what it is, but you can see all these blocks and things that have moved around and stuff. Cool. Yeah. I'll, we'll have to put that on the travel <laughs> list. All right. So how did you come to doing that thesis? Oh, how far back do you want me to go? As far back as you want. But oh. like, let's go, let's, let's go back. Okay. So I'm Asian. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place. Ethnicity, great place to start. <laughs> and um, I would make my family and all my ancestors proud if I had become a doctor. Uh-huh. Um, I quite enjoyed school in high school, actually, but that sort of stopped at year 10. Wow. So year seven was just transitioning from primary school trying to figure out what high school was about we talked a little bit about that earlier how it's a really difficult transition for all students going from primary school to high school they're completely different models um year eight I didn't know it then but I was actually going through my first major depressive episode wow spent a lot of the time in the library and actually remember my friends from year seven (laughs) who were very sweet and innocent and um I liked them because they weren't like I went to an all-girls school and they weren't like all the other girls who were talking about boys and they would talk about the Simpsons and they were very innocent. And one of my friends um, one day was said, oh, don't you like us anymore? Aww. And I said, oh my God, why? No, why wouldn't you think that? And she said, because you don't hang out with us anymore. Aww. And that made me realise, oh, I do spend a lot of time in the library and I had nothing else to give her, which is, of course I like you. I just want to be in the library <laughs> yeah did you know at that point that it was a major depressive episode or were you just in it oh uh, that's interesting i i knew i was in something right but it was very foggy like just had, a, had the briefest barest awareness but otherwise not really no right but then year nine and ten quite enjoyed school did well at it enjoyed everything i learned and in year nine, went to a science camp that was held at, um, well, it was a program called the, the Siemens Science Experience. Now it's just the Science Experience because Siemens was a company that <laughs> sponsored it. Yes, your facial expression is appropriate. <laughs> S-I-E-M-E-N-S. Are they still yeah. around? Don't they make Are they? things, yeah. technologies? But they funded a series of three-day science camps specifically for year nine students going into year 10 to encourage them to be interested in science, therefore be more likely to pick science subjects in year 11 and 12, and therefore be more likely to do it at uni and do STEM. I think this is even before STEM. Like, I don't know if STEM was a thing. They just knew we need more science Mm. um, students. Mm -hmm. Um, And the one I went to, it's funny now because... Um, working in the profession, I can look back and see that it was an activity they probably rustled up at the last minute. (laughs) But I loved it, and it was um, about hydrology and how river systems change. So they had this big tray out the back of some parking lot, filled it with sand, made a fake river channel in it. Extraordinary waste of water. Hopefully it was recycled, (laughs) but they got a hose and put it down the fake riverbed, and then as it moved along, it changed the river, and they talked about how that happens in real life, which it does, of course. Rivers migrate. And I found that so interesting. That was the first time I thought of earth science. Wow. I think the other thing that was happening at that time was, even though I liked all the topics we did in Year 9 Science, the ones I was best at was 
Earth science. Right. I wasn't as good at physics or chemistry or anything like that. Yeah, so in year 11 and 12, I was looking for options to focus more on that, but there weren't many. So you have geography, you have chemistry and physics, but not many schools offer earth environmental science as a subject. I ended up changing schools and going to another school in year 11, which was an agricultural school. So I did agriculture, which um, taught me about soil science and land management, which is as close as I could get, and I was quite good at it, and I liked it. So I wanted to do earth science in uni. Wow. And was the lack of that subject why you said earlier you didn't like school after year 10? Was it because it was hard to find what really gelled with you? It was for a few reasons. Um, No, not really because of the lack of the subject. It was more because I felt that from year 10 to 11, there was a very distinct and sudden change from learning for fun to memorising things for the HSE. Going to a selective school, that was even more important, and coming from an Asian heritage, it Mm. was paramount. Um, The other thing was changing school, didn't have all the friends or the supports that I knew from before, so my goal was just to get through it as quickly as possible. So I made a couple of good friends in high school Mm. and um, had that friendship network in year 11 and 12, Mm. but I didn't get involved in the school community or feel a sense of, oh, we're going through this together. Yeah. Yeah. And also I had um, a pretty pretty strong depression in year 10 and 11 again, and this time I knew what it was. Right. And so I was just trying to get through it as quickly as possible. How did it, going through it for the second time and knowing what it was, was that more empowering or was that more scary? Hmm... It wasn't empowering. Um, I definitely felt like it was more on me to do what needed to be done to either uh, succumb to it or get through it. Mm. Um, I called the kids helpline a lot. Great service. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and because I'm the youngest and um, my siblings grew up in moved away and that sort of thing um I had more time alone so I just sort of found my own ways to I guess express it but actually I was just very angry and (laughs) sad all the time it wasn't a good period of life but Mm. I made through it yeah I got through it finished school that's pretty good heck yeah it's very good I think that I mean talking from the perspective of a teacher just finishing school these days I think is quite an accomplishment because it's so I think it's difficult for students to learn how to meet the meet the requirements that the school sets and and you're absolutely right when they're talking about a shift from learning for fun to learning to complete the HSC Mm. the whole focus narrows down onto well, you have to do well, otherwise you're doomed for the rest of your life. And so suddenly the anxiety, particularly with your 11 students, just shoots through the roof because, you know, they've gone from being a child and learning and experimenting and, you know, kind of adventuring, you know, in in their thought life and in their education to suddenly having to make these decisions and it's impressed upon them that it's going to influence the rest of their lives when it doesn't actually. I mean... Yeah. 
There's a great meme which uses the image of Dario. Remember that? Oh old my god, Dario is my. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the caption says something like, "Oh, I don't want to be stuck in a job I hate because I was forced to make a decision on my career when I was 18." So true. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was my spirit animal for a while. There. What happened to her? I have no idea. She probably grew up and lived a compelling life. <laughs> Became an activist or something, changed yeah. her name. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Hopefully didn't become a corporate sellout. Oh. <laughs> um, so, you, so you finish high school, you make it, you make it through <laughs> and then you go into university. Mm-hmm. What happens there? Well, first I cried. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) So I disappointingly got um, a high UAI and I only wanted like mid-80s to do science. Oh, you poor thing. Wait, you got a high? High I got a high because I did okay and then I was in a selective school, so you get scaled up. Okay, I think that's the only time I've ever heard anyone be disappointed with a high UAI. Because um, I didn't feel that it was a measure of my study skills in those two years because I don't remember studying. I remember trying to study. I remember falling asleep at my desk or opening my workbooks and getting really stressed out and feeling really stupid compared to everyone else in my in my peer group who had all been at that selective school yeah. since year seven and eight and nine. Like I only got there in year 11 mm. and that's only because they have a bigger intake in year 11. Um, so I didn't feel it was a measure of my, um, you know, academic capability. So there started that feeling of, oh, well, I got through by luck. I don't feel that I earned this, but now I've got to live up to it. Um, the other thing is that having a high UAI meant that my, um, I'm going to say my dad, cause it was more for my dad than my mom, but my dad particularly wanted me to apply for, um, accountancy right. cause I had the grades for it. I, I just came a bit too short to go into medicine. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he said, well, why would you do science? You won't get a job, you know, blah, blah, blah go into business so we had a conflict over that right but so, so you went into science well what I thought was a compromise but now if I was to go back and give advice to my 17 year old self I would say that's not a compromise yeah uh, I chose to do a double degree so I did science and business oh mm, two degrees for the price of two degrees, two degrees. Yeah. yeah in four years right uh, yes, yeah. um, I did the honours degree with my um, science, so yes. five. Okay. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I, I want to go into what it was like to do a double degree. Hmm. Um, I did a double degree as well, but it definitely wasn't in science and, and business. I think a double degree is always interesting though. It's, oh. What yeah. was your double degree in? <laughs> I did it in... I did a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Global Studies. And in the Bachelor of Arts, it was sort of like a double major in literature and philosophy. So (laughs) it's just a bit of light reading. (laughs) (laughs) A bit of light reading, which became just, yeah, I have very, very many books and I don't know how many of them I've actually read, but yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of writing. They're there on the shelf. So it counts. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if you haven't taken them out of the shrink. Totally. Yeah, they're on there. (laughs) Each new book is another ego boost, yeah. you know, regardless of whether I've read it. Do you have or any not. books in other languages? 
I think I may have an original Don Quixote. Oh, like, well, you're at level English. 10 already. So <laughs> <there you> <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, does like Elizabethan English count? But like, I don't know. Um, well, what about you? What was yours like? What was the Don Quixote um, like? I, the only subject I've ever failed, and I don't mean in uni like ever, was um, a first year business subject. Right. So I couldn't finish my business degree. Well, I should call it commerce because that's what it was called. My commerce degree without doing the subject. It was first year accounting. Right. And yeah, it was really tough failing because it it, I was used to feeling like a failure, but then going, oh, well, I survived. But this time yeah. I was, yeah. And um, what was interesting, so the interesting thing about my double degree and what it gave me was a reminder that um, it's it's not all black and white. We're not awesome at everything or suck at everything because um, you can, at that time, you could choose to do one degree before the other mm. or you could choose to simultaneously take subjects from both degrees and sort of do them together. And I chose to do that because I didn't want to forget my first one yeah. by the time I finished my second. So first semester of uni, for the first time I'm commuting all the way into the city i'm spending four hours on public transport a day um i'm navigating a new campus not knowing how to make new friends attending lectures what's a lecture i've never been to a lecture before and then they're talking to me in this language credits debits transfer what what and um i'm failing my accounting subject at the same time i'm getting hds in environmental science so i thought there's something a miss here it didn't help me feel any better about failing my accounting degree but it did make me really think why am I doing this commerce degree yeah yeah um and obviously I stuck with the two degrees I think maybe I missed out on getting some good advice because maybe I didn't talk to the right student advisor or didn't go at the right time of year whatever sometimes it's just yeah, butterfly effect you just something's different that day and it changes your life but I seriously considered okay I'll drop the business degree mm. but learned that the way it is a double degree is not two degrees stuck together it's a completely different unit where they're intricately combined and it didn't seem that easy to just drop it I'd have to go back and apply for just the bachelor of science right and when you're at that point where you're fatigue and mental load and stress and then you're kind of in it on your own oh my all my siblings have finished uni years ago and they're all in the workforce and who do I ask for advice and stuff. So I thought, look, I'll, I'll stick it out to the end of first year, which means I'll have to do accounting again, and then I'll see from there. Um, and, of course, I managed to pass the second time because you know a bit more about it and you try a bit more and all that stuff. And then by then I felt like, well, I may as well just keep the degree. But I wonder if someone would have advised me, hey, you could save yourself a lot of time and money if you can't genuinely answer the question, why are you doing this? Um, but as I went along and got into my second, third, fourth year, I did always try and go, well, since I'm doing it anyway, get out of it as much as you can. So I knew not to make a false compromise anymore. And I didn't major in accounting. I did management, which my dad didn't understand at all, but... It was at that point that I realised, well, he can't do anything to <laughs> make me change my mind or he's not, he's not going to physically go in and 
rip up my enrollment yeah. forms for me. I can just do it and I'll have to deal with it. So, What was it like taking that stand for yourself on what you're going to do and where you're going to go? Um, quite scary because I was always afraid of repercussion and I didn't have big confrontations. It was right. like subtle defiance. <laughs> so, you know, um, I'd, I'd see him and he'd say in passing, how are, you, how are you going with your studies? How's that subject in, you know, your accounting major going? Because unfortunately, he also did an accounting major. So he oh. felt like he knew exactly every single assessment and course learning outcome and whatever that I would be going through. And I'd say, oh, no, not doing that this semester, not doing this semester. And after a couple of years, I said, Dad, <laughs> I'm not doing an accounting major. Yeah. Kind of gave me this stony look. I felt my insides dry out. And then he just went, and then he, I think he just walked away. And then, uh, yeah, it just never got discussed again. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so no actual repercussion at all at the end? No. Heart did beat fast, but yep, yeah. Wow. I th- I was so far into it by yeah. then, by, by my degree, and I would have been a few years older as well. Yes. Yeah, so I was grateful for the ability to attend, um, you know, a business-centric class in the morning and then the afternoon go to an environmental-centric subject in the afternoon and see where the two groups in society are not communicating well. Yeah. I didn't know how to solve that problem, but I thought, oh, well, if everyone in my um, Enviro class went to my management class this morning and saw the challenges that we have in the workplace actually creating these structures, mm-hmm. maybe they'd be a bit more open-minded. And if people who are in charge of corporations and institutional bodies knew the impact of the decisions they're making from a global point of view, an environmental point of view, maybe they'd feel they actually did have the power to do a little bit more. Which is still so prevalent today. Yeah. So that's what I took away from it. Like I said, I don't know how to solve that. And it's not like I was sitting in either one of the classes being the activist for the other other (laughs) industry. I just kind of kept it with me and thought, okay, I've got an advantage that my classmates don't have because I'm doing a double degree. Maybe they're doing something, a specialty in something else. The other thing that I took away from it was I thought, well, I'm doing management. It's not really about business. It's about people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and some of those subjects were very interesting. So I just kind of went, yeah, I'll enjoy them while I've got them. And then, yeah. Yeah. As you progressed through your undergrad study, did the feeling of I'm just here because I'm lucky, did that pass or did that stay on? Um, it eased off towards the end of second year when right. I started learning how to study. So interestingly, I don't think in my whole primary school or high school career did I learn how to study. They tell you how to do mind maps. There's beautiful mind maps beautiful in the colors. world. Yeah. <laughs> um, they they tell you you have to study this, you have to study that, and I th- I think I, I recall in in year twelve they did try and teach us how to plan timetables, plan our time, include time for breaks, and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, it doesn't really penetrate at that sort of late stage, and also you take that little lesson from school home and then you've got a hundred different kinds of home environments that all our students are 
um, living in and whether you can implement that or not mm. is anybody's guess. And then in first year, I was just rote learning and trying to pass. Yeah. So in first semester, when I knew I was already going to fail accounting and I could see that I was struggling with maths, I really didn't want to fail another subject, particularly because I didn't really care about accounting. But maths, I'm like, oh, I need that for my science degree. Right. And that was when I started asking for help. Right. And, yeah, and then made it to second year. And by the end of second year, I started feeling like, okay, I know how to study now. Like, maybe not the way that everyone else learns. And maybe it's not the best way to study, but it's working for me. I'm not just rote learning, although a lot of it I am. Um, but I'm getting something out of it. And I feel like, okay, I'm earning these grades. And if I didn't get a high grade, I know where I went wrong I I struggled with that particular Mm. module or whatever and I started getting used to the (laughs) disparity between my business grades and my science grades and I thought well proof's in the pudding if only you know I knew what I'd be good at and what I'd like which was science and it's interesting that I did the business to try and satisfy someone else and it proved that I wasn't as good at it yeah Mm. and so when you finish it all where do you go from, or how do you get from, I finished my double degree to there's a random rock in a random place that it probably shouldn't be? How did it get there? Oh. I don't know. Oh, um, <laughs> I wish it was more profound. It's probably not the right way to do research. But again, I'm already putting qualifiers on this. Um, I always wanted to do honours because my older sister, who also pursued science, had great disappointment to our family. <laughs> And was really good at it. Being still working in science. Um, She did her honours. And um, what do you do when you're a stressed out honours student and you haven't collected all your data and the write-ups approaching you and and, uh, entail child labour? So she brought me into her lab at UCID and had me counting seeds. The nepotism got you there. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is a lab... But not a chemical lab. No one's in lab coats. You're doing planty things. Oh, cool. And it seems a bit more interesting than just going to classes all the time. And you get to do research and discover new things. That's cool. Like, that's surely more worthy than, you know, memorizing some stuff or writing a good essay. So I just kind of got it into my head that I always wanted to do honors and that that would be my measure of academic brilliance because clearly <laughs> coursework I was just lucky to be good at the mind maps right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and through my undergrad degree I initially wanted to do environmental science got into earth and environmental science and then a student advisor who was really good he said well a lot of the subjects are very similar to a geology major so you could double major and I thought double degree with a double major in one of them and in honours that looks pretty cool all right so I'll do it veered more towards the geology and so by the time I went to honours and I expressed interest I was expressing interest with the um, geoscience academics and the uni and looking around for for a project with them but you know I definitely did it from the bottom up I wanted an honours degree and was Mm. looking for something that I could do and it would have been really cool if I'd found research that I thought was really interesting Mm and wanted to pursue it and found out that research was the best way to pursue it. But I was still very much in the... I was 20. I was 20, and I was like, oh, this is the way you do it, right? And it would have been good if I'd gotten some advice, like just 
get a job first and yeah. come back to it. Actually, I did get that advice, but then <laughs> the addendum <laughs> the addendum to that advice is once you're earning, it's very hard to go back, right? Because um, it'll be difficult for you financially. And knowing yeah. what I'm like, perfectionist, procrastinator, um, and also, yeah, I was young. Maybe that was a different kind of advantage because I thought, well, I've got the flexibility to yeah. be able to do this now. Yeah. So I thought maybe it's better just to do it. Yeah. And then and then get into the workforce. So so yeah, so one of the academics in the school offered me that project and I took it. Wow, mm. cool. I think it's really important to talk about the different ways that we end up meeting goals because mm. you know, I think that there's a misconception that we find a passion, pursue the passion and then that leads us to greatness. But I think sometimes it works the other way around where you aspire to do something great, like an honours, and you go, I'm going to get there, however I'm going to get there, and do it that way instead. I think there's lots of different sort of ways to proverbially skin a cat. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the advice and role models that I had were from my family. Right. And they were very much... And for good reason. They were very much like, know what you want to do and do it. Don't faff around Mm. and don't be lazy, don't waste time, that sort of thing. And if I wasn't going to be successful in my income earning career, you know, if I wasn't going to be climbing up the corporate ladder or all that stuff, um, do well academically. Have something that you can show for your efforts and be proud of. Mm. So having you know a dr in front of your name yeah even if it's phd not md (laughs) that's something right you know um even if you're going to do a degree that we don't understand why you're doing it get top marks you know so i just didn't know how to ask for advice along the lines of well i don't know what to do right i don't know what i like or whatever and also i thought i did thought I did know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, I did do it, technically. I wanted to do an honours and I did it. You I did. just I just, looking back now, I don't think it was all anything that I should have stressed so much about it. <laughs> was there... That having that attitude of, you know, know what you're going to do and do it well, is that pressure? Mm, yeah. How do you juggle the pressure that comes from family expectations along with your own expectations of yourself. That's a lot of compounding. How do I juggle it? Or how do you manage it? Yeah. I think I just felt like I either had to meet it or you don't. Yeah. Right? I love my family. And no one has ever said to my face, you're a failure. No one has ever said, you can't do this or you're not good enough and that sort of thing. Yeah. But what they have said, (laughs) and often for good reasons, is you're not trying hard enough. Right. Or you're lazy, or, you know, stop whining about it and do it. That that sort of thing. Do you find that that voice becomes internalized? Yeah. I'm actually learning all about that voice. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. How? I feel like this stage of my life is all about learning how to identify that internal critic right and understand how it affects 
my feelings, my thoughts, my behaviours, and then deciding whether I agree with it or not. And often you don't. It's a critic, that's why. <laughs> surprise, surprise. But often I'm also um, still amazed by how compelling it is, even if I know I don't agree with it. And that's the voice that says, you suck, you're not worthy, you got that by luck, oh, people are just being nice to you. And I think everyone has a voice of that kind. Of course. It's just how much of it do you identify with. That's really interesting. Mm. What started that journey? You said that you're at a stage in your life now where you're starting to learn more about your inner critic and critique your inner critic. <laughs> ironic, isn't it? It's so ironic. I'm highly qualified for this. <laughs> um, therapy started it. Right. So um, uh, I know you like chronology. So if you flash forward. <laughs> you can um, go wherever you like. Huh? Primary school, high school, uni, honours. Then a um, bit of an emotional meltdown. Some of which I think Tara remembers. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I needed to get away. I knew I needed to do something different. And I was kind of at the... Uh, I was facing a similar decision after my honours that I was facing before my honours, which is I know I really want to travel, when mm. should I do it? Mm. And again, I thought, look, I have some savings. I have the benefit of having no commitments or attachments or responsibilities. So even though it's just scary not going into the workforce straight away and earning, now might be the best time to travel. And also I've never done anything really different from what I've done my whole life, which is do well at school. And be a good daughter and sister and okay maybe not be a good daughter and sister but still do good at school um we traveled for a bit came back um found you know we're gonna go into that right <laughs> <laughs> whenever anyone says travel it's like oh okay yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so travelled for a couple of years on and off yeah. and came back and for the first time had to find a job. And I thought, let's go backwards. Instead of finding, you know, a, high, you know, a professional job, um, I missed out on the share house experience. <laughs> Why don't I catch up with the um, poorly paid, hardworking retail or hospitality job experience? Um, and I did get one despite having no experience and being in my mid twenties. I think it was cause I was available all week. Right. So I'm like, mm, she's flexible. <laughs> so I worked at a cafe. Um, surprisingly they didn't rip me off. They paid proper wages on the books, nothing, you know, cash, no cash in hand or anything like that. Um, my first time in customer service, learned a lot about what I liked, what I didn't like. And that was probably the most useful thing. What did you like and what did you I like? I like making people happy. I like giving good service. I like trying to think of something that someone needs before they've even realised. Oh. Yeah. But then you also learn there's a lot of rat bags in the world. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is that what you didn't like? Yeah. General didn't like. I also didn't like, and this is just that business, um, but, you know, it's a small family business, and I didn't like that despite being really hard worker and always showing up, and um, bonding with the other wait staff, that I didn't feel uh, that I didn't feel accepted by the owner, that he didn't particularly like me or whatever, um, because I, I I still didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, um, I didn't think I did that well in research. Didn't want to go back to it. Wasn't going to go back to studies. 
didn't know how to get a job right in science so um, you're in that limbo phase yeah and I was also I knew to get a job in science I just had to look for jobs and apply for them right and I was but I was too afraid of failure and I thought let's just try something different for now I've been doing something different for a little while um and you know was trying to get um his okay to start learning how to make coffees right and he just wasn't interested which you know from his point of view I kind of get it you know you work that you own a busy cafe and most of your um employees are you know uni students or school students high turnover they're not reliable they don't hang around um and you make a lot of money from the coffee so you want your experienced baristas on so I understood that so I didn't really push him that hard I asked for a few days off to go self-fund and do my own barista course and I found it really interesting but like anything you don't really become good at it till you practice and he wouldn't let you practice he wouldn't let me practice um the school that I went to um gave advice and said you know just work in any low-level cafe you know like a chain a franchise one where they're not really known for their coffees but they'll let you just pull lots of shots because that's how you're going to learn but I couldn't really afford to give up my my shifts at that cafe to try and get a job somewhere else where I might only get a couple of shifts because I didn't really feel that my future was in being a you know (laughs) yeah an international you know latte artist um it was just something I wanted to learn and value add to my skill set be a bit more useful while I was there because I did a lot of shifts yeah so it means that I could have stepped in if needed but if you're not going to teach me how to be behind the machine then if your barista calls him sick you're the one who's screwed yeah so but that doesn't answer your question well no but it's fine though I mean I guess it leads into another question so at what point do you discover what you do want to do have you discovered do you know what you want to do you're still figuring it out Mm, can't wait till I'm grown up and I figure it out oh my god me too right and I'm waiting (laughs) yeah um is the like is the fear of failure still there Mm -hmm. I'm getting uh, I'm getting it better at it because I'm sticking to what I feel I'm good at and I've been told I'm good at and I just have to sort of keep um and this is a thing it's legit you gently counter the doubt and the self-cynicism with strong examples of based in real evidence that you can't twist into right twist into something else so if you have a distinct memory of someone saying hey you did really well at that then even if in your head you're saying well it was good luck or well I scraped through and whatever there's still someone there who gave you praise for it and recognized that you did well right and And this is back to the countering the inner critic and the yeah and I didn't get that in that cafe job at all it was really exhausting got burned out um and I was commuting about an hour and a half each yeah. way as well. Um, but <laughs> it paid the bills and it was, you know, my chance to earn my keep and all that because through uni I didn't work that much. I was yep. on um, Centrelink yep. and I just had little jobs here and there to keep me going. Yeah, but I got poached by one of the cafe customers. 
way. Yeah, because the cafe was on, you know, level four of the shopping centre. Yeah. And then levels five, six and seven were office suites. Yeah. And there were um, this family, the this older couple and their nephew who ran a small family business together and they had an office up there. And they would always come to the cafe to, to get a bite. And... Um, chit-chatted with me, got used to seeing me and said, you seem pretty smart. We need someone to work the phones. Um, Would you be interested? Yeah. And so I went up to visit them one day just to find out, well, what is it? What are, you know, what's involved? La-da-da. Can I do this? Are you sure? And it seemed pretty straightforward. And I thought, look, um, it's stepping sideways, you know, not stepping up or down, but clearly I've had enough of this place. I've still got my... I've, I've now got 10 months of experience working in hospitality. I didn't before. And I've got a barista certificate on yeah. top of it. So I'll do something different. And um, ended up working in that office for a little over a year. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And then <laughs> while I was there, my supervisor who supervised me through my honours, yeah. um, I'd been thinking about, okay, I'm clearly not happy. I'm going okay but um, I'm not happy and how do I get back to doing what I'm interested in, what I enjoy, which is probably more to do with science, but not academia. (laughs) And um, I thought, well, I should make use of what contacts I do have. Don't let them all slide. I have been away for a while, but I really should contact my supervisor again to say hi. But I hadn't quite worked up the guts to do it. And then out of the blue one day he emailed me and said, Hey, how are you going? Uh, my computer like got um, got a bug, and when I reformatted it, I lost your thesis. Do you mind sending it to me again? I was like, uh, yeah, sure. How have you been, by the way? We should catch up. I said, yeah, let's go get a coffee you know, next week. And so we, we met up and caught up on the last few years, told him about my travel. He told me about um, his life in academia and he was responsible for a geology subject, like teaching a geology subject, but was really um, had a few different projects going on that were competing at that time and was looking for some help and um, remembered, kindly enough, remembered me as, um, you know, a decent demonstrator and that, you know, did geology with him and offered me um, a teaching gig. So I did that for a semester and um, that was my entry back into the world of science albeit through through teaching (laughs) (laughs) oh my god it's so weird how that how that Mm, works out like that i know and it's always so unexpected as well yeah i want to ask because i i think i actually identify with your journey in a a couple of ways in that i (laughs) i finished school had no idea what i wanted to do Went into university and my parents had suggested teaching and I was like, no, I don't want any teaching. So I did my double degree <laughs> and then, you know, when university finishes, I still don't magically know what I want to do. Yeah. And I was very disillusioned because I thought that I would know at the end of that four-year yeah. period of time and did something similar in that I went, you know, traveling and I tried, you know, every job under the sun still don't know like, still didn't know what I wanted to do um and you know everything sort of like ended up working together to where I am now yeah. I guess I want to ask 
I don't think that our lives should be defined. <laughs> I guess I want to ask starts with a statement. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that our lives should be defined by our vocations because I just I fundamentally don't believe that our vocation encapsulates who we are, mm. nor does our resume adequately sum up what's happening to us internally and personally in terms of personal growth during that time. Mm. So in that season of you're finishing university, you travel for a bit, you come back, you work, you fall into the uni sphere again, what events or what is happening within you that helps you or, or tracks your growth as a person? Like what are you learning internally as you're going through all of those, those in that phase things. yeah um it was actually a really um difficult phase for my self-esteem um and the the most difficult thing that I was grappling with while I was also trying to figure out well what do I do with my vacation um actually had nothing to do with career but with friendships um so friendships and relationships with family you know because after honors um the first trip I did was to visit my sister and her husband in London um and their new baby and um travel around Europe for three months and generally my immediate family supported it you know they might not have liked it but they thought look she's done well at uni she's a good girl she deserves a trip um, and then you'll come back and you'll settle down, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so the next year when I went backpacking to Southeast Asia was met with a very different response. Some members of my family were very supportive. Yeah. Generally, all my friends were supportive. But there were a couple of members in my family who really didn't agree and um, really tried to talk me out of it. And I know it came from a place of genuine concern. Mm. But um, it really challenged me into feeling like, am I doing the right thing? But for some reason, it wasn't just, am I doing the right thing, but am I um, a good person? Or am I just a selfish person for wanting to do this and rejecting everyone's very excellent advice? And are they going to tell me later on, I told you so, and I'll just prove myself to be an idiot. And I went anyway, and it was the best thing I ever did. Really? I'm really glad of it. Really? So the biggest thing I taught myself was just going because it required me to say to my, you know, to those people who were concerned and disagreed um, to say, I'll be okay. Mm. But not so much I'll be okay (laughs) because I didn't know, but I'm going to do this and um, I'll come back. Yeah. And is it? Is there like a ownership of self that happens in being able to say that? I think that? that's what I was struggling with. Yeah, I really tried. And um, all the weeks leading up to just flying out were the hardest. Really? Yeah. Everything got better once I checked into the first hostel. <laughs> <laughs> but everything... Wait, hang on, hang on. Wait, yeah. what did that feel like? As in, you, it's pressure, anxiety, this is crap. And then you finally get on the plane, you check into the hostel. What does that feel like? The correct, the, it was an unburdening because mm. it was like, now there's no going back. Mm. No, that's not true. Because <laughs> I did, I also did tell myself, remember, it, it's a bit like, oh, you're not going to be homeless if you move out of home. Mm. Is, you know, I told myself, if you don't like it, you can go home anytime. 
But once I was there, I was like, well, I've landed. My feet have touched the shore. And even if I go back tomorrow, I went away and did it, which is what I said I do. So it was a big unburdening because once I was there, I knew I wasn't going to go back home straight away. And I felt like, well, now I've got nothing left to do but use my time. Yeah. I've taken myself away from concerns about career. Um, I've taken myself away from concerns about not being, you know, um, a, a dutiful daughter or, or a dutiful sister. I'll do what I can from here. <laughs> Heck yes. Um, yeah. And, and then was... I was really grateful that I, that I went. Yeah. So tell me about the trip. Uh, so I went around a few countries in mm. Southeast Asia. Mm. Um, the first place I went to was Vietnam because I just wanted to see the, the country of my heritage and I remember being terrified on the flight, like halfway through. It's about an eight-hour flight. It's about the four-hour mark here over the ocean. I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> it's too late by then. <laughs> this may have been a bad idea. And that was when I told myself, but you're on the plane. You can't eject now. That's a safety hazard. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just stay on the plane. <laughs> wise Get off at the wise other end. words, yeah. <laughs> Get off at the other end and... And worst case scenario, you don't even have to leave the airport. If you change your mind, you can just walk to the other terminal and buy a ticket home. Yeah. And I I self-soothed in that time, like in that moment. That was my, me calming myself down and saying, here's your other option. It, it's going to be okay. As opposed to just sort of panicking silently, which is what I was used to doing. And I don't think that's what I'd ever been taught how to do, how to just... He's he's a problem. It's okay to be scared. Yeah. And then think about what your solution is. It was always just, well, what are you going to do? Or why are you so upset? (laughs) And was that the first moment of like genuine self-soothing, managing that state? I think so. Because even when I was freaking out at uni about whether I was going to suck at it or how I was going to pass or finish my degree... I don't think I actually self-soothed. I think it was just panic, panic, panic until you get so fatigued that you stop and then you reset and you start again. Mm. Yeah. So you learn that lesson of self, self-soothing or you, mm. you kind of like enter into that space of self-soothing and you're unburdened and you're in a foreign country. What happens over the next few months? Or what is that next few months like? Um. Um, deliberate and controlled wanton abandon. <laughs> uh, I because love that. That's beautiful. I was, I was backpacking with all the other young backpackers, but I was a couple of years older. Yeah. And I was um, out on my own with only my own money and the clothes on my back and in my bag. And, <laughs> you know, but... I've never done anything like this before and I had a strict upbringing, so I'm going to be taking baby steps. Um, So I still had lots of, like, terrified times. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried to utilise what I'd learned the previous year when I'd gone through Europe, which had been slightly more planned. (laughs) Um, And actually, looking back, it was very well planned, but at the time I don't feel like it was well planned because I thought well planned meant you need to know every museum and restaurant you're going to eat at every day, which, of course, I didn't. But my Europe trip, um, it worked out quite well because I had very good friends who had friends yeah. in certain countries in Europe that I was interested in visiting. And I said, we'll hook you up with them and then you'll know someone local. So my three months in Europe 
alternated with, you know, a couple of weeks on my own, a couple of weeks with someone who could show me around, a couple of weeks yeah. on my own, a couple of weeks with someone around. So couldn't quite emulate that in Southeast Asia because I didn't know anyone. Yeah. Um, but I did kind of know, well, at the very least, I want to know which country I'm going to next and do yeah. I have the basic criteria, the first place to sleep, money of that currency and a visa. Right. And then everything else will follow from there. Heck yeah. Yeah. That's radically different. <laughs> it's radically different. What helped was that, you know, the climate was pretty similar, so you could just pretty much pack the same stuff. Um, and that there are a lot of backpackers. Right. So even if you're trying to meet new people and do new things, you'll probably bump into the same people from country mm-hmm. to country. Yeah. At around roughly the same time because itineraries are very similar. So you yeah. might miss them in Cambodia, but you'll find them again in Thailand. Or yeah. yeah. Did you did you make friends? Yeah, I did, but they generally didn't. They didn't stay friends for very long after backpacking. No. Like you, you stay friends on Facebook. You have fond memories, and you might message yeah. each other once or twice when an anniversary comes around. Yeah. But um, they're travel friends. They're travel friends. Two people I met on that trip in different countries at different times who I felt like I got quite close with um, just by chance and stuff. They both, at a later date, you know, were coming through Sydney, contacting me, hey, let's meet up, la-da-da. And it was perfectly pleasant. You you have lunch, you show them around Sydney, but the connection is just not there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's understandable. I think... But it doesn't taint my memory of our time together. It's just a reminder that, you know... um, I'm I'm a firm believer in you you meet people when you're ready for them and when you need them. They just come along. You know. Probably more accurately is that they're always there, but when you're ready you'll be receptive to them and make that reach out or make that connection or be open to them reaching out to you. That's yeah, that's beautiful. I love I'm I'm also a firm believer in that as well. Um I really I really believe that. And I also, I think I, like, in addition to that as well, I think there's also a sense of, out of all the people, in all the time, in all of history, we happen to be in contact with the people who we're in contact with now. And, like, and that's, there's something really beautiful in that. And there's, I think it allows us to bring intention into each connection that we have but like you say like I think there needs to be an element of receptiveness and Mm. that can't be pushed or forced it just sort of naturally yeah like I had very strong feelings of connection with people I met when traveling because you're on your own you're completely vulnerable so you feel you feel really touched when someone wants to talk to you. Yeah. Right. Out of all the other strangers in this place, they want to hang out with you. Yeah. Um, and if you get along or if you have some similarities or if they remind you of a really um, close person from back home, it makes you feel like the world's a bit smaller yeah. and a bit closer. But I did recognize that, you know, when I would, when, when it was time to say goodbye because they were going their way and I was going my way, or in the case of those two people who, you know, passed through Sydney and we actually arranged to catch up again, mm. it wasn't continuing connection that had been maintained. It was trying to relive that memory. Mm. And that's always always not going to be the same. It's a bit awkward. And it's it's very much about time and place and, and stage of life. Yeah, definitely. Mm. What stage of life are you in now? 
<laughs> improving and heading towards some kind of stability. And yeah. what is, when you say stability, like what does that look like? Is it that is that a financial stability or a career stability or mm. it can sound very boring, but yeah, I think um, not so much career because I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I just know that I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'll enjoy it while I can and just make I love most that. of it. Um, but um, financial stability, you know, I yeah. didn't end up homeless, I didn't end up <laughs> bankrupt. I do love that we get to the end of the story and it's like, and I'm still not homeless. I have a bed. <laughs> um, and um, romantic, like my, in my relationship. So my, my partner is, you know, our relationship is the only steady, long-term committed relationship I've had. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it came by a surprise. Did it? <laughs> yeah. How did it? Do we have time? We've <laughs> got time. Yeah. Yeah. So before I met Lance, um, well, my early 20s was typified by um, being quite distrustful of the of, of men and I recognise that if I live in that sense of distrust for too long, I'm going to give myself problems. Um, I'll create a phobia or something. So long before Tinder existed, I went online dating and, and thought I'd try and meet people that way. But um, deliberately kept it casual so a date here or a couple of meetings and that sort of thing and it felt like I could control it um, and I've, I've always really enjoyed being single quite independent but particularly quite introverted so I enjoy my time the way I do things my space and then when I moved out of home I thought now I can really enjoy it because I literally have my own space I can buy the bread that I like, not the discount <laughs> one. Yeah. I'm not going to keep every magazine and gather up all this dust-seeking paraphernalia. I'll just have my stuff. Um, but I sensed a loneliness and yeah. thought, well, um, I don't know how to meet people. Um, I'll, I'll try and meet someone for real now. It mm. just, just didn't work out. It was a lot of, you know short-term relationships and I knew that was because of my own um you know I wasn't comfortable in my own skin yet and it's such a cliche but you know I wasn't very kind to myself so it's hard to expect certain kinds of um love and affection from someone else or to or to um accept it when it's offered if um you don't know that you deserve it and my, my parents divorced when I was quite young, so I don't have many memories of, you know, what a romantic relationship looks like because mm. I was just too little, you know. Like, by the time I was that age, they were both working two jobs just to pay the mortgage and stuff. So, you know, it wasn't happy families. It was, oh, you know, go to school, keep your, keep your head clean and, um, and we'll all be all right. You know, you do your thing, we'll do ours. So, um so so yeah so not not very lucky in love but I also didn't want to admit that I even wanted it I just thought "Eh." (laughs) I'm not a cat person but I look forward to being old yeah Yeah. I actually (laughs) identify with a bit of that as well sort of getting myself to the point where it's like well I'm independent and I'm fine by myself anyway yeah so like of course if it comes along great but like exactly yeah part of it was defiance and part (laughs) of it was real which I think is true for you as well it's Mm. like I really do enjoy 
um, my freedom. And, and it was a bit like doing my business degree. Since I've got it anyway, <laughs> I'll look at the positives, which is I get to choose my holidays. I get to choose where I eat. I get to choose what I buy um, and my time and all that stuff. I get to choose who I share it with. So how did you meet Lance then? Oh, very interesting. My sister um, had a COVID wedding, so it was like less than 10 people. Oh my God, I love this story already. (laughs) (laughs) So um, my sister um, planned a wedding. She was just going to be immediate family because we just want to keep it small for COVID reasons and we'll Zoom with the relatives and stuff around the world. Um, her husband, or then fiancé, is originally from Scotland. He's been living in um, Australia for several years. And so all his family connections are back home. So it was one of the reasons why they wanted to get married, because they thought if we wait, how long is it going to take before we can have a wedding with all your family here? Um, and he's very stoic, straight-up guy. He was just like, yeah, it's fine. She said, who are you going to invite? There's nobody to invite. They're all overseas. And she said... We cannot have a wedding where it's just you and me and my side of the family. You need some people. Because she's a very caring and thoughtful person, she contacted two of his closest friends here in Australia. And um, one of them was Lance. And he was meant to come with his um, wife and kids. Sadly, um, just a few short weeks before the wedding, his wife actually passed away. Wow. So they weren't even sure if he was coming. So they're like, that's okay. You know, we'll just see how we go. Um, And then he ended up coming up on his own. Mm. Um, He's got two teenage kids and stepdaughter. And his stepdaughter had um, a baby of her own. So she was going to come, but it became really difficult figuring figuring out the, the, the parenting situation. They said, I'll, I'll go on my own, which is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when I asked him about it later, he said, well, they're good friends. I care about them and weddings are happy. So Aww. I was going to go, but I didn't want to be that blubbering guy crying in the back of the photos. So I'll just stay to the side. <laughs> so we met at my sister's wedding. Yeah. That's so romantic. I actually really love that. It's pretty, pretty crazy. That's so, <laughs> that's so cute. Yeah. Even I'll allow that. Um, yeah, it, it, is, it is pretty cute. Particularly yeah. because yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it just took a while for me to admit that I liked him and that he liked me, whereas he kind of cottoned on to it a bit quicker. He kind of just <laughs> knew and messaged a lot. And, really? Yeah. Was it? Was it scary? It's terrifying. Because it was like, I've got a choice of responding to this in a way that I've responded to before. Yeah. And hoping it goes out differently because um, because I'm older and, and more mature and because he's a different person. Mm. Or I could actually just try something different. And me if you do this it's so hard to know what you want because you've skipped the question what do you want and you're trying to answer the question what should you do so I knew I liked him but I didn't let myself believe it and I knew I wanted to see how it would go dating him but I really felt that I shouldn't he's been through this really major loss quite recently um he's got kids and 
just what? How do you? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still a little bit speechless from what you were saying before because, yes, I absolutely mm. skip over what I want in favor of what I should do. Yeah. And that's really hard because I'm not often being gracious with myself from mm. the space of what should I do because it's so intertwined and intermingled with other voices which have told me what I should do or societal expectations of what yeah. I should do. And so it's really hard to bridge the gap between what I should do societally, what I want, and then intuitively what I know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know why we do that because it doesn't actually work out to be more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yeah. at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um. And so... And so obviously you started, obviously you connected and you started dating. Yeah. So um, the week after the wedding, I took a few more days off and went on a little holiday with a friend who yeah. I was really close with. And I just kind of told her about it. I said, hey, I've got this situation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she'll totally understand this when I say I don't remember word for word her advice, but it was very useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think... She's just very pragmatic and she's really good. She's really good at like taking these complex thoughts and simplifying them down and going, well, here's what you've got and here's what you could try and here's your other option if that doesn't work out. So you can give it a go. And I was like, okay. Yeah, love the pragmatism. She's great. Yeah. <laughs> give me all my options and I can yeah. give me all the contingency plans. Yeah. Yeah. So she's kind of like, it sounds like he's this sort of person, he's old, he's more mature, he's been mm. through this stuff, and you are too. So you could just talk it out or you yeah. could um, try it for a bit and if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Okay, so what is it like? I mean, you've you've become comfortable in your independence and in who you are in that space and how you interact and all that sort of thing, you know, solidifies. Mm. What then happens when you let somebody in and then have to negotiate vulnerability and mm. being open and now it's not only your needs but it's another person's needs and wants as well, you know, it, it becomes infinitely more complicated and infinitely more beautiful at the same time. <laughs> yeah. What has that transition been like over the past year or two, year or so? It's been, um, you know, it's not you do it once and then you become awesome and you, you're fine for the rest of your lives. <laughs> it's been we've figured out one phase and then gone okay and then we find another challenge before us and we find our way through it. Um, initially, I was really... Um, overwhelmed by all those thoughts because mm. I knew that well yes I want to take my friend's advice but I also knew that well this is not some person who had a cool pick on the online dating app <laughs> you know this is a person who's um, got a connection with my family already yeah um he's got a family he I know a bit more about him already before knowing that I want to you know um be romantic with him and and date him so I felt like I really had to make the right decision. Yeah. And that was impossible. It was really, really hard. Because I thought, 
I have to decide whether we're going to be together or not because if we decide to be together and it doesn't work out, it's going to hurt all these people. And that was really hard. And I'm not sure how I made it through to realising that it is okay just to try and give it give it your best shot yeah. with good intentions and yeah. you know integrity in your heart um we probably came through with a lot of conversation with him yeah so we're both on the same page and also being given that advice by other people yeah. i was gonna ask too mm. like you you've talked a lot about this idea of doing the right thing and having expectations placed upon you mm. At the end of the day, I mean, I guess, aren't we the only ones who knows what's actually right? And how do you make that choice as to Mm. what is right for you and what is in line with where you want to go and who you want to be as a person? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know what criteria I was using when I was trying to make the right decision. Mm. Do you use a certain criteria now? Um, because I think like for me and I want to know what your answer to this is too sorry I'm veering but like for me it's always been and it fucked me up as a kid because my parents were like you just have to act from your heart and know a heart from your heart space you'll know what the answer is but when I was young and I had no fucking idea of what what that even meant yeah it was really like because I didn't know who I was, but I think like now as I'm older, ex- it's like now I have a better sense of what my intuition is and I can go from there. I think saying that to a kid is um, really well-meaning, and it, but it's also yeah, very difficult because you're expecting a child to have the same amount of self-awareness as an adult. And we know that adults, many adults, still struggle to be more self-aware. Oh my God. And for me, you know, when I met Lance... Knew he liked me, I knew I liked him, and I had this choice of kind of being coy about it and playing a game that I played before, which was, well, I don't like him that much, we're just going to date and see how it goes, instead yeah. of just being honest saying, actually, I really like him, and it's kind yeah. of scary, and I want it to work, but I've never been in a long-term relationship before. How could I possibly have the skills and experience to maintain a relationship? Because mm. relationships are not just about liking each other, they're hard work. And so I was trying to answer the wrong question again. I was trying to answer, well, what should I do? What can I do? What am I good at? La, da, da, da. Am I an emotionally robust person who hmm. will um, make any relationship I start a success and therefore I deserve to give it a shot with this man who's got a lot on his plate? Mm. And that was just completely the wrong question to answer. The question should have been, do I like him enough to want to be with him? Um and to trust myself that it's not a um, a fleeting interest, but that it's it's genuine and there's a real interest in each mm. other and into getting to know each other more, which there was. We spent four hours every night talking into the wee hours on the phone, getting to know each other really quickly. A lot of jokes about hugging pillows and stuff because <laughs> we were not together. <laughs> um, and so... You know, we kind of fast-tracked that period of getting to know each other because it was just like a quick dump of, okay, what have you been through? What's going on and all that stuff? Mm. And we both had major life experiences that we'd just been through. 
um, he'd lost his wife and I'd recently had surgery for breast cancer. So there was a lot of preemptive guilt on my part that I couldn't be a part of his family because it was a fully-fledged family before and I come after the fact. Yeah. But also guilt that, well, um, I'm okay now, but I've recently really been unwell. Yeah. How could I saddle him with that burden of having a partner who might be really sick when he's recently been widowed? So Yeah. Yeah, a lot. So Mm. when, when was the diagnosis for breast cancer? Ah, in that joyful year known as 2020. Okay, hang on a second. So you, you're you gearing up to move out and to like... Um, so I'd moved out. Yeah. yeah, so you move out and then... So I moved out in January 2020. And then you got diagnosed with breast cancer. After COVID. You're joking. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's shit. Yeah, it was a bit. Because you finally, like, step out and you've got your own space and then... It was a bit of a wallump, yeah. Because, um... Oh, just because, do I need to... Yeah, because cancer's a bit of a... <laughs> yeah, because, um... I've learned a lot about breast cancer. It's quite common that, you know, when people get sick, they become a sudden expert in that field but I only know as much as I need to know like I don't know all the acronyms and whatever uh you know breast cancer is considered an older woman's disease like with any cancer a Mm. lot of the medicine and science behind it is actually a game of probability so it's about measuring your risk of getting it and my risk is pretty low right it's not doesn't really run in my family and um I don't have, you know, genetic mutations and those sorts of things that predispose me to it. Yeah, and then we're in lockdown. So I was pretty conscious that I was one of the statistics of, oh, every person that goes into the health system because of COVID is getting squeezed into that system alongside other people who have non-COVID-related illnesses. Um, I had important scans postponed one to two months because of close contacts and this and that I had limits on support people that I could have with me in hospital Mm. so how did you how did you get diagnosed and when did you get diagnosed yes all the ladies need to know this so (laughs) I was very lucky and I had a symptom that could not be ignored and I had um, bleeding from my breast Mm -hmm. which is extremely unusual And I was talking recently to someone, actually, who also had cancer young, a different kind of cancer. And we're talking about how when you first notice something's up, you self-soothe because you've learned how to do it now. And so you start not assuming the worst and you think, well, it could be this, could be that. No need to panic. Um, Just do what you need to do. Go to the doctor, get it checked out. It'll probably be fine. Even so, I did Google it, which you're not supposed to do. And even then... It was like, yeah, it could be cancer, but it could also be, you know, an infection, a benign cyst, all that sort of stuff. I was like, oh, it's probably one of those other ones. So uh, I went to my GP, got an ultrasound, got a mammogram, and most importantly, had a biopsy. Right. And the biopsy showed the malignant cells. Wow. Yeah. So in young women and men, because any gender can get breast cancer, it's just a cancer that forms in breast tissue. 
And it's just that women have more breast tissue than men. But the younger you are, the denser your breast tissue is, mm. which makes it harder to see things on scans. Mm. So besides the fact that you generally don't get scanned until you're much older anyway, mm. even if you do get scanned at a young age, and by young we mean under 40, um, it won't necessarily show anything up. So I was very lucky to have something so um, obvious. obvious to follow up yeah. on, which was bleeding. Right. Yeah, because I didn't have any of the typical markers, which are lumps or, um, you know, like rashes or odd yeah. blemishes or marks or inverted nipples, if they're sort of caving in, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so my mammogram didn't show anything, but yeah. my ultrasound showed two lesions, which were sites that could then be sampled by biopsy and mm. wow and then the and then you got both of them that was the surgery was getting them removed just one breast yeah wow and just got a single mastectomy or a unilateral mastectomy wow and mm. so so i'm part robot i love that <laughs> wait what i like part as in like i've got an implant really mm. it's a big decision they say you know um they give you advice. So my understanding growing up was that you go to the doctor when you're sick and they tell you exactly what you should do and it'll fix everything, which is completely not true. Mm. And in my experience, it was here's what you've got. Here's some things we can do. Now go and sit on that for a bit, but you need to give us an answer about what you want to do in like a couple of weeks because of COVID. We want to get your hospital admission form in. Yeah. And I'm just like all these new terms and lingo that I don't understand. Yeah. And a lot of that year was spent on social media trying to find information from other resources as well as on, like, the official sites. But you also want someone human who you can talk to who yeah. said, I've been through this. Yeah. How do you find solidarity or support when you get diagnosed with cancer? Um, there's a few official mediums. So if you've got um, a good doctor or a good specialist, um, they should be giving you, um, you know, the number of a breast care nurse. Yeah. Is that what you do? Um, yeah, eventually I did talk to a breast care nurse. Yeah. Um, and there's also charities like the Cancer Council. Right. For breast cancer particularly, there's a um, there's BCNA, the Breast Breast Cancer Network of Australia, yeah. I don't even know the name, and and that sort of thing. But it was also a lot of just looking for hashtag breast cancer on right. Instagram. Because <laughs> how do you, like, how do you cope with that? As in, so my sister recently had ovarian yeah. cancer and has yeah. just finished the treatment process for that yeah. and said that a lot of the difficulty around that, yes, obviously, is like, getting the cancer and having the treatment and everything, mm -hmm. but then going back to life afterwards and then also like having really lovely, well-meaning friends who at the same time will never understand what it is to have that. Mm. Did you have issues like that or was it different? I think, I think every story is different. And I think being in the bubble of one, that was my lockdown unit during COVID and also just with my personality type, when I go through a bit of a shock, I sort of withdraw to try and decompress and process it. Yeah. For me, I found a lot of advice and warnings online, mm. good things, also scary stories. So I was prepared for the worst and found that 
through my actual experience, some of it applied to me, some of it didn't. Right. Okay. So the hardest period for me was between the initial diagnosis and then having a plan for surgery because there's a lot of uncertainty in that period. I listened to a couple of podcasts that talked about how you break the news to people you care about, also whether you should or not. There was a lot of there's a lot of good advocacy out there for you doing what you feel is right. You're the patient, you're mm. the one who has this. It's not like you have to tell everyone in your family. Yeah. Also, you don't have to keep it a secret. It is really up to you. So sorry, that's our dog. She's stealing the spotlight. So <laughs> she's speaking over you. So when I had my diagnosis um, and listened to that podcast, <laughs> I, I just knew very quickly there were a certain number of people I wanted to know straight away and that I wanted to tell them one by one. And then after that, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. So that was a big week because each evening um, was spent talking and sharing the news with, well, first my sister. Um, and I think she kind of was prepared. She knew it was up. She didn't know it would be that, obviously. But I told them on the weekend, hey, I'm, I'm bleeding from my tip. And they're like, yeah, you get it checked out. And I was like, I am. Don't you worry. And, um, and I don't know anything about breast cancer, but maybe my sister did. And, and I didn't know that at the time. So we went out to dinner. And then I said, oh, you know, very casually, my... What I want to do with all of them was not make it this big announcement, right. but make it intimate so that they could have their reaction just with me. Yeah. And I could have my reaction just with them. Right. So with my sister, we just went out to dinner, caught up, caught up on stuff. But then I did say, so, you know, I got the results. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not good. Yeah. And she was like, oh. And then I told her, yeah, you know, it's breast cancer. And she was really good. She was... Um, really upbeat about she was like you know you'll you'll be you know actually I can't remember what word she used and it was nothing it was no cliche or anything but she was basically optimistic and she said and she was encouraging and she said you know well hopefully we got it early and we'll go through it together and she said do you want to tell the rest of the family yourself and I thought that was one of the the kindest things anyone could have done because I didn't think about it she said and and so it allowed me to think what Mm. do I want so she said, you know, do you want me to tell mum and dad? And I said, actually, yes, could you? But I'll tell our sisters myself. She was mm. like, okay, you can tell our sisters, but I'll tell mum and dad, you know, mm. and I'll just message them. I'll message you to let you know, and I'll tell them not to, to bug you about it. Mm. Is it. Would that help? And I was like, yeah. But I found out later that evening, you know, so we said goodbye, went up to my flat, she drove away. As soon as she got in her car, she immediately caught her other sister and just burst into tears. Because at that stage, we didn't know how bad it was. Yeah. You just know that cancer is a scary word. Yeah, totally. And I've since learned that there's so many different kinds of cancers and different kinds of experiences. And I'm really sorry your sister's been through it because oh. it is intense. The other good piece of advice I got, which was from my other sister in um, who's overseas, was I wasn't going to tell anyone at work my worry was um you know having a perception formed about me you know like because it's impossible to avoid gossip in the workplace and generally it's harmless and well-meaning but I don't know it was just such early days and I didn't know how I felt about being oh she's the one with cancer yeah um which is not particularly judgmental but it is a way that people will look at you yeah um but my sister said look you need to tell at least one person at work 
who can be your backup so that when you're disappearing to get appointments and see mm. doctors and stuff, people don't think that you're slacking off and they can sort of answer for you. So ended up being really good advice. So I told my manager and asked him to respect my privacy, at least until I knew what the plan was. Yeah. And he was really good about it. I was really supportive. Wow. Mm. I was a couple of weeks out from surgery and I thought, well, now it's time to tell people. Not because there needs to be some grand announcement, but because I'm going to be taking leave. And yeah. I'm going, There's no benefit to skimming over it. Just state it matter of fact while I'm sick and I'm going in for surgery, but it is cancer. And I didn't want to get pestered with well-meaning texts and messages and yeah. stuff, which are really well-meaning, but I knew it would overwhelm me. And I'd gone through... A couple of months of getting really easily triggered and not knowing if I was going to burst into tears at any point Mm. during the day and we're also transitioning back into the workplace so I'd also come out of working from home and not seeing anyone and being in lockdown to starting to see faces for the first time so it's going to be overwhelming all around Mm. so I ended up asking my manager and I said to him could you tell the team why I'm taking leave and gently ask them to politely not message me today Mm. Um, and he did and I got messages anyway but because I'd asked (laughs) that I felt okay not to reply to them yeah right yeah wow yeah and actually after surgery um, I was in hospital for a week and then I was in recovery for a couple of months and I transitioned back to working from home again so I wasn't complete invalid (laughs) but you've had a major muscle on your chest completely cut right through so you you can barely get out of bed let alone lift your arm and stuff so um I moved back to my mum's for a couple of months oh my god which was hard yeah I bet love my mum and she was there for me every minute yeah and it was still hard yeah of course but you know my unit was up a flight of stairs yeah and there's only space for one bed yeah and I did want mum to move in with me but my sister who was taking um like the most initiative and being my carer she just kind of made an executive decision said no you should be at mum's it's it's flat yeah she's got a bathtub she can help you bathe and just out of good luck, she has one of those beds where you press a button and the back oh, goes up. Oh, that's awesome. So that really helped me get out of bed for a while. But hard yeah. too because you've already you've already broken away from that dynamic and then you're, you know, you're free and then you have yeah. to go back into that dynamic again. That's, yeah, yeah. understandably difficult. Yeah. I've got one more final question for you. If there was one piece of advice that you would give to anyone or one thing that you would say going through that journey or even going through a journey with mental health because we've touched on that Mm. what would that be yikes (laughs) take time to answer it but like you seem like you are somebody who has been through hardship Mm. and who's done the hard work around working through that and coming out functional Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and growing from challenge and I think that that's a really admirable and difficult thing to do I think and this advice may not work for everyone but I've been finding it's helped me a lot lately and looking back I think it helped me then too when I knew to do it 
you know, and this is all true, they often say, you know, don't be afraid to ask what you need. Mm. Don't be afraid to trust your gut instinct. Um, you know, demand what you deserve, you're worthy and all that. And that really applies. And I feel like I've tried really hard to do that. But why has it still been so hard? And I'm learning that it's because often we don't know what we need. Mm. Often we don't know what we deserve. So it's a big ask for ourselves, not from other people who want to support us. Of course they're going to ask. It's good that they're asking. But for ourselves to be asked, what do I need? What do I deserve? And you can take example from other people's lives. In the case of, you know, the fallout from my immediate diagnosis and, and just managing that shock. I took example from other people's stories, podcasts, people I knew in real life who were happy to share with me how they went through. And they were really, really valuable. Like I was quite lost without that, that advice. But before all of that, you need to be okay just to feel so, you know, and it helps as we get older, but building the self-awareness to identify an emotion first, translate it, and then communicate it to someone else is, for me, the starting point. And then from there, I find that I figure out what I need. And if I don't, and I've shared that with someone who really loves me and knows me, by sharing the feeling, they could help me figure out what I need. But they can't read our minds, so it's a it's a starting point. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm. Oh, that's great advice. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you, and thanks for um, joining us today and for <laughs> being willing to come on and have a conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so big. much for making time to talk with me. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. This conversation with Bernie was a beautiful reminder that life most definitely isn't going to figure itself out for you. The road ahead is rarely clear, and when faced with both opportunities and expectations, it can be tricky to navigate the best way forward. However, Bernie's story reveals to us some of the things we can intentionally cultivate on our journey. Things like awareness, bravery, a deep sense of identity and courage can only be formed through intentionally questioning what you want in line with who you want to be. Doing so nurtures a sense of self that allows us to go boldly into the unknown that opens up before us, even if we are unaware of the final destination. At Mere Utterance, we want to create a community of storytellers. And so we welcome you to visit our website, check out our blog, leave a comment or send us a message. We would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation and would love even more to hear some of your story. Thank you again for joining us. And remember, everyone has a story. You just need to ask the right questions.